Hello and welcome again to another episode of Sacktown Talks. Today we have a special guest joining us, Senator Anna Caballero, joining us from Salinas. Anna, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to join you today. Hey, no worries. You know, I, I know you were an assembly member recently and you were an assembly member uh, a while back ago, weren't you? Not so recently. That's correct. Yeah. So w- when did you first come into the assembly? I first got to the assembly in, in 2007. It, I got elected in 2006. Okay. And, it, and what years did you serve? Um, well, it's technically between 2006 and 2010 is the way they record it. And then I um, got hired by Governor Brown to serve as a cabinet member, uh, the Secretary of, of um, State and Consumer Services. And then we did a reorganization and I ended up the Secretary of Business, Consumer Services and Housing. And I did that for about five years and then um, was recruited to get back in the political arena and to run for the assembly again. So how many, I guess, years did you have left on you know, I guess term limits, like what, what section of the term limits are you in? I'm, I'm part of the, of the original term limits. I was going to say old term limits, but that sounds awful. But right. the original term limits were six years in the assembly and eight years in the Senate. And so I had two years more to serve in the assembly. So I, I ran and won my election. So I served between 16 and 18. And then the Senate seat, um, came open and I ran for the Senate and I won that seat in 2018. So I'm currently serving the 18 to 2022 Senate term. And, you know, aside from the obvious COVID, you know, weirdness we've had these last couple of years, kind of what are some of the differences you've noticed since I guess your first term in the assembly in 06, 07, and kind of when you came back in, you know, 2018, 2016? Well, the, the biggest change is that in the, in the, during the time that I was working for Governor Brown, um, a ballot measure was, was put on the ballot that changed the term limit time. And what it did is it reduced the amount of time that an individual can serve in the legislature to 12 years. So it reduced it from 14 to 12 years. And you can serve either in the assembly or in the Senate or split it up however you want but you're, the most you can serve is 12 years. And so what that did is it gave um, people in, that run for the assembly the opportunity to stay in that seat for 12 years, assuming that they can get the, the vote of the electorate and they do a good job. It, it establishes, um, it really creates an opportunity for people um, not to be jumping from one seat to the next. Right. Uh, and it, it stable, I think it stabilizes the legislature and, and, and makes it a little bit more of a professional organization. You know, as this is, I remember before, you know, when the term limits were happening, uh, you know, members would talk about how they felt they were in competition with other members because kind of, as, as you noted, a, a Senate seat would open and basically it'd be like, you know, three or two assembly members fighting for that one Senate seat. Uh, have you seen, I guess, I guess a more of a camaraderie among the members now than back then? I, I think that's what it does, is that it creates an opportunity for members in the assembly to stay in the assembly for 12 years and, um, and to really focus on establishing good relationships as opposed to trying to figure out where you're going to go next. And, um, and I think that you're absolutely right. It, it establishes a camaraderie and, um, and it, it, it um, creates an opportunity for people to stay around for a while. 
And that's better for the institution because um, having the historical um, information about why things happen and being able to follow up, uh, you know, we, we pass rules and ask departments to implement them. And if you're leaving after six years, you never really know whether the department implemented what you passed as a legislator. And now you're around for 12 years. So you have a lot more of an opportunity to, to look into what the departments are doing and to ask them questions, to follow up. And that historical reference is really important. So I think it's, it's, it's done a number of things. It's, it's created an opportunity for um, accountability and the ability for, for people to really follow through on the things that they're real, that it's really important to them. That's a good point. So I, I guess prior to, to 2006, you know, I, I guess, what were you doing? And I guess kind of what, what brought you to want to be in politics and come to Sacramento? Well, I, I had my own law practice for 25 years. And, um, and I, I also did some work as a, the head of a nonprofit doing violence prevention, which is um, really focusing on ways to build the opportunity for us to reduce violence in our community. In our community, it was gang violence and really do prevention work, early childhood education, after school programs, literacy programs. Um, so I was doing that kind of work, but, but politically I served for 15 years on the Salinas City Council as a mayor and council member. Um, I ended up in, I grew up in Southern California and I went to law school because I wanted to make a difference in the lives of, of poor people. Um, I, my family is from a small copper mining community in Arizona. Oh, really? Which one? By, owned by the copper mine. Um, and I saw a lot of injustice and I wanted to do something about it for people who would normally not have money to hire an attorney. So I went to law school and when I was in law school, um, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, they were organizing farm workers to um, help create a union and to demand the rights of workers. And I was really um, uh, impressed and motivated by that movement and decided I wanted to move to rural California to be uh, a part of, of the movement and also to be able to represent farm workers. And that's how I ended up in Salinas. And so I went to law school because I wanted to provide legal service to people who um, usually can't afford legal services right. and got to Salinas, fell in love with the community. And what I realized is that you can help change people's lives as a lawyer um, by giving them information to help them make choices, but you can do just as much in the political arena to help to change the community, to get the kinds of things that all of us think are important for the community. Good libraries, parks, uh, soccer fields, uh, right. good roadways, curbs, gutters, and sidewalks to be able to walk to school. And, and that's really why I, I got involved in, in politics. It was not something I planned to do what, what town in Arizona did you grow up? Um, I, I actually didn't grow up there, but my family's from there. I, and I spent most Christmases and, and summers over there as well. The, the name of the community is Clifton. It's the okay. Marenzi Mine. It's about 30 miles uh, from the New Mexico border. And okay. it's in a very isolated community. Right. I mean, you can't drive through it by accident. <laughs> you go there. And, and where'd you go to law school? Went to UCLA. Okay. Wow. So you 
from LA up to Salinas. Interesting. I'm moving up the coast is what I would say, because right. I went to school in San Diego, undergraduate in San Diego. Nice. You know, I think one of the cool things about your district is it's like the major agriculture district. You know, you have the beautiful coastal ag and then, you know, you got the Central Valley as well. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about your district and kind of some of your favorite parts of it? Yes. So so the district is the Salinas Valley in Monterey County, the uh, San Benito County, and then generally between between 99 and the the um, the the hills to the west in Stanislaw County, uh, Merced County, Madera County, and Fresno County. It's a rural agricultural district with 27 cities and six counties, and um, and there's there it it's it doesn't matter where you go in the district. The issues are are all they're always the same. Number one is people want a good job. Um, and so they're looking for economic development and the ability to be able to earn a living, to be able to buy their own home. Um, really hard workers. Uh, uh, healthcare is a challenge. Um, uh, water is the number one issue. Uh, the lack of affordable housing, which you see all over the state, but is is uh, is really challenging in these communities because more and more, the more affluent Silicon Valley is moving in into the area and it raises home prices significantly. So it becomes less affordable for people to live in their own community. Um, and, and education, I think those are the issues that are, are really on people's minds. Um, and you know, it's, it's different, different, different seasons, different crops are grown. Um, but it, it is a rich agricultural area. And by rich, I don't mean the people are rich, but it, it is, it produces some of the produce that is only grown in California. We're 99% of the, of that particular item, like, um, like figs right. or kiwi, uh, those kinds of things are only grown in California. And so uh, if we don't produce them, then you don't get to eat them here unless they're imported. Oh, wow. Fascinating. You know, we take this all for granted, you know, being so close to it, but really true. You know, That's exactly you, right. You don't realize we grow um, some of the best melons that you'll ever get anywhere in the world. They're right. It's right here in our, in our region. Right. And strawberries for that matter. Yeah. Lots of strawberries. That's, those are popular. I remember when I was a kid, you know, you'd only get strawberries in certain seasons, right? And right. now we have them year round. It's like the greatest thing. <laughs> so let me, it's interesting. You mentioned that because that's one of my, one of the things that, um, you know, we, we have a, um, as, as part of, of what we contribute to in the assembly and the Senate is, um, is a, um, a, like a snack room. And so that there's fresh fruits and vegetables and crackers and things so that when we're working, we have some place to go and, and grab something to eat. And we all contribute to it. And, um, and I always point out in that room when the produce there, whether they're strawberries or blueberries or obviously bananas, we don't grow them here right. in our country, um, when they're imported because we take for granted that we can get it all year round. But in reality, a lot of the times we're importing from other countries. And so that's great, but, um, but we need to be able to produce it ourselves. And for example, we're not producing very many avocados anymore. Uh, if we don't import them, then our guacamole is in short supply. And you know how that is when, when we're celebrating and, and you can't get avocados. Exactly. I've noticed they've become quite expensive lately. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> explains it. That's right. Um, you know, it, it was interesting when COVID-19 first hit, you know, we had all these stories about, you know, restaurants, you know, shutting down and, you know, grocery stores having supply issues and, you know, crops not being able to be sold, um, you know, and some different supply chain issues. Um, you know, now that we're here in, you know, 2021 and, and hopefully the pandemic's, you know, turned a corner and winding down, um, you know, are, are you still seeing kind of supply chain effects there in, in the district with agriculture and other things? So interestingly enough, um, the, the early problems were not supply chain problems. It was um, eating preferences when everybody was working and um, pre-COVID, pre what happens is that the, the restaurants and the um, more expensive stores, right. the Whole Foods and uh, Trader Joe's carried all those products. The minute that COVID hit, people got scared. They were no longer working. And so they didn't have disposable income. So those stores stopped their orders and the restaurants, because they were closed, stopped making fancy desserts. And so the, the, the high end products like strawberries were, um, were not sold any longer. And when you've planted with the assumption that you're gonna have buyers on a regular basis, it's a disaster when those buyers go, oh, never mind, we don't need anything next month. And that's what, what really devastated um, certain parts of the industry was because people, people kind of um, hunkered down and what they wanted to eat was, was more, was the kind of food that they felt comfortable making themselves and they didn't use a lot of those products. And so it was, it was pretty scary for many of the farmers for a good period of time. I think it's recovered. Um, and the sense I get from speaking to the farmers uh, this year is that things are, are more back to normal and that the buyers are buying what they were buying pre-COVID or they're starting to get back to that. And that's a good thing for our farmers. You don't want perishable product left around either in stores or in trucks because nobody wants to buy them anymore. Right. Yeah. yeah. Just goes to waste. Well, I think a lot of that went to the food banks and that doesn't provide any income for the farmers, you know? Right. No, definitely interesting how, how you know, different, you know, chain effects can, can affect things a certain way. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's true. Uh, you know, so this year everyone was limited to, to 15 bills, kind of, I guess, kind of what, what things did you work on this year and kind of how, how did your bills fare? Um, I did pretty, I did pretty well. We were, we were limited to 12. Oh, 12. You were living. Okay. Senate was living 12. Okay. Yes. And, you know, um, it was touch and go because the last year, the year before we were limited, we all agreed we'd do 12, but the assembly really didn't pay any attention to that. And so <laughs> they sent over tons, tons of bills. And so to our detriment, we, we, uh, we, we had, um, fewer bills than they did, but this year we all agreed to 12 and, and I think it, it worked pretty well. Um, I, you know, I was happy. I had, I only had one bill that I was um, uh, kind of distressingly concerned about, and it was a, a housing bill. And in the middle of this housing crisis, the last thing you want is to leave a housing bill on deck. Um, right. But it is a two-year bill and we'll finish it off next year. So I, I have high hopes on, on that one. Um, 
the 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 one of the bills that I worked really hard on was a broadband bill, and that one became more more of a crisis because of the coronavirus. Right. Um, we've known forever that uh, our broad, our broadband, our internet services, is not distributed um, across the state evenly, um, and within our communities, um, it's not available at a reasonable price, high-speed internet um, to all communities, but it really um, put the spotlight on it with the coronavirus and all of us asked to Zoom from home and and students to, to Zoom um, to receive an education. And so what, what we saw is that in many rural communities, there was just no access at all. And, and students and workers were having to, to go to, to a coffee shop or to their local library right. and sit in the parking lot in order to be able to get service. And so we did this whole series of, of broadband bills here. And also during the budget uh, allocated in, in excess of $6 billion to start working on the infrastructure necessary to improve it. So I'm really happy my broadband bill passed and got a signature and, um, and that was one of the pieces of legislation that I worked really hard on and that was lobbied very heavily by the telco companies. Well, is that part of the larger kind of, I guess, broadband for all package? Yes, that was part of the negotiations that we did with the governor's office and the assembly. Okay, great. And I, and I guess, um, you know, I guess, I guess how soon is this gonna go into effect and you know, could communities start seeing better broadband? Well, there's a, there's a, a number of things. One is, um, that the, the bills all do something a little bit differently um, in terms of how we uh, access resources to be able to put out broadband services. Um, my bill requires the, uh, or allows the CPUC, which is the California Public Utilities Commission that regulates digital TV, mm -hmm. um, not broadband, but because the companies have wrapped up broadband with digital TV, we get to know where they have their, their infrastructure. It, it allows them to get more granular data so that we can find out um, where broadband is being deployed in the state. And, um, and they, the companies have a uh, franchise that allows them to operate in the state um, and give us information that has, has been um, that, that has shielded them from the analysis as to whether they're discriminating against poor communities. Okay, that they are prohibited by law from, do, from doing that, but because we don't get really good data from them, they, we suspect, um, and I can tell you based on who had internet services and who didn't, it looked to me pretty clearly like um, poor communities were being discriminated right. against. And so um, that's number one, is that we're gonna get better data. And number two is right now, if you have a complaint about your service, there's nowhere to go. And so this gives the CPUC the opportunity to get local government involved, um, to start looking at customer complaints to determine whether um, the, their service is, is meeting all our expectations. So that, that was my bill is it really, it gives some teeth to this franchise that these companies get. Um, the money that we allocated the $6 billion is, um, is going to go out 
immediately. Um, it is kind of, as we speak, it's being um, the, um, the maps are getting created to determine where the middle mile, the middle mile is like the freeway system of, of broadband. And you need that middle mile in order to make sure that you're, you're um, being able to access uh, as many communities as necessary. And so I expect there's gonna be a pilot project that'll be developed uh, and will be deployed within the next year. So, so there's a, there are a number of things that, that are going to happen all at the same time and an expenditure of resources to start to build out the infrastructure. So will you get better broadband tomorrow? No, yeah. but um, what it's gonna do is it's gonna start um, developing the backbone that some of these smaller companies need to be able to come in and offer broadband services, better competition, better service, and, um, and, um, and also more accountability because of, of uh, SB 28, which is the bill that I did. Okay, that's great. You know, what, one thing you kind of touched on and it kind of reminds me is kind of the, the differences in, in the, between the Senate and the Assembly. And I guess you having served in both houses uh, in the past and recently, um, and, and, you know, you're, you're kind of seeing a lot of, of these 12-year members, you know, switching from the Assembly to the Senate. Can you kind of tell us what, you know, the differences you've noticed in, in you know, being a member in both houses and kind of some pros and cons of, of both? Mm-hmm. Well, the, um, the, the obvious difference is that there's 80 assembly members and 40 senators. And there's a certain energy in the assembly with having 80 people that, um, um, you know, if you can imagine having a class of, of 80 people, right. you know, you're going to find someone you like and somebody you want to get spend time with and talk about, about policy with. Um, and, and like I said, there's an energy that's created there. Right. Um, the challenge with that is that you don't get a cha- as much of a chance to get to know people because there's so many people, um, and um, and and so that's one of the the cons of the assembly. But it's one of the pros for the Senate. In the Senate, there are 40 of us, and half the number of people you get a lot more time to talk policy. And our hearings are are. Um, I think a little bit more robust because there's not as many people sitting at the dais that all want to ask a question that there's limited time. So you have more of a, if you look at the hearings, you can see that the Senate, um, the Senate on the floor, we have no time limits, which the assembly does. They, they ding you and then, then, then you have to be quiet right after three minutes. Um, But that's because there's so many of them. If everybody wanted to talk, they'd go on all day. Um, Whereas in the Senate, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit quieter. You have more time to talk about policy and um, and to really get into the detail of the policy as you do your hearings. And so there's pros and cons to both. I'm enjoying being in the Senate a lot um, because people that have different political philosophies are having good discussions about where do we want to go on some of these issues. And I, I think that's really, really important. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, one of the things that you kind of spearheaded and, and were very prominent in is the eviction moratorium. Mm-hmm. And kind of as that, as I guess, has winded down, um, you know, is is there enough in place to kind of, you know, protect us from complete catastrophe going forward? And, you know, are we on a strong enough footing to not need an eviction moratorium anymore? You know, and it, your, your question requires looking at a crystal ball. And, and, um, and that was part of 
Yeah, it was, it was part of what was really difficult in discussing about the eviction moratorium. Um, we were trying to determine, you'll, no, you'll notice that we kind of went six months at a time um, and, and we kept extending the moratorium and changing the, the expenditure of resources that we put to help lower the rents that people owed and pay, help landlords, um, particularly as, as people were low income and couldn't afford to pay the rent. We wanted to, to do everything we could to keep people in their current residences, understanding that if people had to move in the middle of a, of a, of a virus, that it was a disaster to have people looking for places to stay. We wanted to keep people where they were. And I think we did a pretty good job of looking in that crystal ball and trying to decide um, when to have it end. As you know, our eviction moratorium ended on September 30th. And I think we, our crystal ball seemed to say that if we got through the worst of the pandemic, um, that, that um, and we helped to pay down the rent that was owed, that we could stabilize the housing market and not have wholesale evictions. And I think the data that I've seen so far is that, it, um, is that we, were, we were pretty successful in that regard and that the tsunami of evictions that could potentially have happened have not happened. So I have my fingers crossed. We're not out of this pandemic totally. There are still many families that are struggling with sick, sick family members or um, keeping kids home because they don't want them to go to school yet because the youngest students haven't been vaccinated. I mean, there's still a lot of, a lot of um, concern out there, but it seems to me that we, we did a pretty good job of, of covering the, the worst of the pandemic with this moratorium. And I'm, I'm proud of the work that we did because it was hard. It was right. really hard to know exactly what to do. No, and you had a balance between landlords who yes. rent and That's right. renters That's right. is always a, a struggle. And there's still money available for, for, for tenants that owe money and that, that need some help to pay it back. It, the process was pretty, um, pretty hard to access, but we've made it easier over time. And so hopefully if, if anybody still needs to cover some rent that's past due, there's money in that fund. Okay, great. Um, you know, this year, you know, you guys had a record, you know, budget surplus and kind of, you know, we're able to, to, you know, to do a lot more than you have in the past, especially last year. Um, yeah. Kind of, you, we already touched on the broadband piece, kind of what other things did you work on this, this year on the, in the budget to kind of help people in your district? Oh my goodness. Um, there's so many things. Um, I, there, you know, one of the big, um, one of the big issues was education. Students were out of school physically for over a year. And we wanted to make sure that we incentivize the school districts doing in-person instructions as quickly as possible. So they, the schools were, were all awarded extra money. Um, the, in, in March, I wanna say in March or April to do summer school, after school programs, um, extracurricular activities to get students back to school. And, um, and so that, that was really, really important because um, we knew that students had, they had a need to socialize, but they also had a need to, um, to get some remedial help. And so hopefully the schools are, uh, they, they have more money now than they, they have ever had in the history of the state of California. So um, that was really important. We also put some money into 
um, uh, vocational ed programs. As I said, in my district, the biggest issue is uh, our good jobs. And um, one of the things that I've seen in particular through radio programs is there, there has been a discussion about how people don't wanna go back to work with the assumption that they're just lazy. And what I heard um, particularly, particularly on Spanish language uh, radio, call-in radio programs, is that people, um, when, when they were sent home, what they realized is that they, they were in jobs that they weren't happy with right. uh, and their situations were not ideal. And they don't want to go back to that same job that they realized they didn't like all that much. They were on a treadmill. And so training, um, retraining programs become really important so that these individuals can figure out what they want to do with their lives so that they can have a job that brings them uh, satisfaction and happiness. And so that's, um, we put a significant amount of money into, um, into workforce investment programs, for, not only for students, but for adults that, that want to go back to school and, and learn. Um, so there were their investment in our education system at all levels, uh, workforce investment programs, small business. I did a lot of work around small business. The, um, um, the, gr the grant program that we, um, that we did um, and uh, went around and talked to, to many, many small business, uh, minority and women-owned, veteran-owned businesses to let them know that there was money available up to $25,000 uh, for, for them to be able to reopen their businesses and to hire people back. And then I also worked on a micro business program because in, in, in rural California in particular, there are lots of, of, um, of uh, immigrant owned businesses that are self-employed and, um, and they need that, that program is up to $5,000 per, per, per business to be able to get back on their feet again. Um, and then ultimately housing. I'm, I'm a big advocate for um, affordable housing programs. We put a significant amount of money into ho homeless um, shelters. We were able to create thousands of, of, um, of homeless um, units, many of them in old hotels and motels, to be able to take people off the street, to be able to give them the services they need to be able to um, go to work, to get mental health and, and alcohol and drug assistance as well. Right. So, you know, you know we've, we've passed the bill signing you know, period, I guess. How, how many bills did you get signed this year? Um, well, if you, if you count, I did some early on in the year, I want to say I got 10 signed and that, and some of those were not part of the 12 because I got them done from la the year before, um, uh, the, the, uh, small business grant program was, uh, was, was finished on an emergency basis in, in, I want to say in February. And, um, and I count that as this year because we got it done this year. Right. And how many signing ceremonies did you have? Um, you know what? I went to a couple of signing ceremonies. They weren't all necessarily on on uh, on on my bills. Um, the um, broadband signing ceremony was was really the budget signing ceremony, and so that was I'll count that as one of the one of the ceremonies that I went to. And that one in the in the small business, they were really important. Yeah. So turning, I guess, to 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 2021, and and you know. What you're looking at next year you know you mentioned you, you had a housing bill still but kind of what else are you looking you know forward to doing next year and kind of currently doing some research on 
Oh, that's, that's really um, tough to say. I, I have a, a whole bunch of ideas and the question is, what are the ones that makes, make sense at, at this, um, at this time? I've, I've done a whole, a whole series of, of health um, related bills um, related to COVID, um, giving pharmacies the ability to be able to uh, do testing. Uh, uh, up to this point, they've, they've had some limitations. Um, it, they, they could do the COVID testing because the governor did an executive order. So I took that executive order and I expanded a little bit. And that was one of the bills that, that I got signed. Um, I also did a, um, a vape tax that provides money for healthcare. And so I'm probably going to continue to look at healthcare access because in, in um, rural California, if you, if you have a need either to go to a farm to, to get a prescription filled or to see a doctor, you have to travel 30 to 40 miles in order to be able to get that uh, service taken care of. And that's, um, it's really difficult for families that have to take the whole day off in order for them to be able to get uh, a medical appointment. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at, um, at education. I had a bill last year that I put on, put on ice over, um, uh, an education, um, and it really has to do with allowing students that are um, either asylum, um, foster, or, or migrating students the ability to stay the fifth year um, and finish their high school education uh, in order to um, to graduate from high school. Right now, if you turn 18, you're you're you got to move on uh, and go to adult education. So, looking for opportunities for some of our the students that are struggling the most to be able to finish high school. Um, but, but housing has, is one of the issues that I'm, I'm the most concerned about. And so I'll continue to do some work around, around housing. And it just being in, you know, the district kind of what, what are people saying or kind of talking to you about kind of what are some of the big problems you're, you're still hearing about, you know? Well, the number one issue, and actually I'm glad you asked that question because my number one issue has to continue to be water. Um, it, we, we got a, a little bit of rain. Um, it didn't feel like it was hardly anything. And, um, and hopefully this year is a little bit wetter, right. but um, the my district is heavily reliant on water that is brought in from um, um, the Delta. And this year they got zero allocation, which means that farmers had to rely on groundwater. And as you know, if you're pumping groundwater, then you got to figure out how to replace it. And unless we have snowpack or a really, really wet rainy year, you're not going to Recharge. You're not going to be recharging. And so um, that impact is going to be felt significantly in my district. And, and we've got to figure out um, what infrastructure we need in place to be able to do groundwater recharge and, and to be able to store water under underground if we're not going to build dams. And so that's a big issue for, for my district. Yeah. And then I guess back here in Sacramento, you know, we have, we're having this exciting moment where they're tearing the old Capitol down and people are moving into the new building. Have you been in the new building yet? And, uh, you know, do you have an office assigned? And, you know, have you started, I guess, moving your, your office into your new office? So, um, yeah, it's, um, it will be exciting. <laughs> but anything that, that requires you to pack up and move and, and be in temporary spaces um, is, um, uh, is, is going to be a challenge. And so um, I have not been in the new building yet. Um, uh, we, they did a, 
virtual tour, I guess. So it's, it's, you know, one of those things, like if you're looking oh, through yeah. a camera at a house, right. you know, a new house type of thing, um, we're in the process of, of being assigned the um, space and we're going to have to, um, to reduce the kind of the, the junk, I guess you would say that you take over. I've got some great agricultural, big, beautiful agricultural pictures. And so it's disappointing. That's, that's my district and um but i can't have them in the new space so oh really um, you have I'm less have to... space huh i imagine you guys would have more square footage over there for some reason. well you know what i think it's re it's organized a little bit differently um it's it's not that it there's more space in the building but it's set up so that you have um wider hallways if, you, if you've ever walked around the capitol when there's um school children coming right. through and big groups of people that are lobbying, it's really hard to get through the hallway. So I think that this will be a little bit different. Um, and, and we're, um, you know, I think it's going to work out just fine. It's just going to be reorganizing how we do things in order yeah. to make it, make it all work. So we'll see how it goes. We're all gonna have to walk a little further. It's going to be okay. Yep. We're going to have to walk a little bit. We're going to have to, um, be a little bit more patient because it won't be like, like it was before. Like, for example, if you wanted to come into my office and sit down and have a conversation with me, normally you just walk in and sit down in a reception area. Right. right. That won't be possible anymore with COVID. It's not possible at all, right. but, but there isn't much of a waiting room. And so I think people are expected to wait somewhere else and then they get called and they come up into the room, into the office. So we'll see how that works. Text you when you're ready. Yeah, Tex, we're yeah. ready for you. Come on out. Yeah. That's well, that's going to be interesting. It's going to be an interesting transition. Well, it'll be different because we all love the Capitol. And um, and even if our office is really small, we just love the Capitol. And so there's some, there's some it's a it's a little bit disappointing to realize we're going to be in much more like office space, right? Yeah, as I always said, I, I always enjoyed those quirks where the floors didn't align and you know, if you took people through a tour and your client or your clients through the, the building and you went from one, the old side to the new side through one of those half doors, they thought you were just, you know, a genius figuring that place out. So That's exactly right. And the problem is, is that, you know, you're, when you're expected to go to a hearing, people stand around like it's, you're, they're, you're just on a tour and it's, yet it's an office building. So I had, right. I'd have to go, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, because yeah. I'm trying to get through these really, really crowded hallways. That's funny. A bunch of a bunch of little kids, you know, running around and stuff, and you think, "Excuse me, excuse me." Yeah, yeah, it, it will be different, but uh, we'll we'll see how the new space is. It'll be interesting. Well, Anna, thank you so much for joining us and taking time out. Uh, very interesting stuff, and uh, we're looking forward to see uh, how you, your stuff turns out next year. Great, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, thanks, Anna. Have a good one.